I hope you had a good night's sleep. Lee Patmore made the comment this morning that we have a method of getting people to sit forward, and that is that we make it rain in the back pews. And it's possible that you'll experience that some more today. So it's good that you're sitting where you are. I wanted to make a comment this morning about the books and CDs and things, and uh, Bobby's going to say something about that too. Go ahead and sign up for CDs. If you can just hang around afterwards tonight, like at 9, 10 or whatever, we're going to do our best to have, uh, if you just want single sets of CDs, we're going to do our best to get all of that taken care of tonight. Okay? Several people have asked about receipts, uh, both for the payment, for the seminar, and then for books and CDs and things. The best way for me to do that right now is for you to email me and say I need a receipt. And I and I will email back to you a receipt. Okay, that that will prevent me from spending my whole day writing out receipts. So if you need a receipt, and I know some people do, some people don't. If you need a receipt, email me and we'll make sure you get the receipt for the things that you've paid for. Okay? If you uh, are going to be paying for uh, books today or CDs or anything, please, you can pay Chris Bailey, who's back in the sound room, or you can pay me. I do have change for cash. And, of course, you can write a check, and that would be fine, too, made out to the Calgary Church of Christ. Okay? Hey, everybody, let's give Kelly a hand. He's done a great job coordinating things here. Thank you. Uh, I know we have a few new folks here today, at least one named John Nicholson. Any, <laughs> John, you want to stand up and introduce yourself? And then, Henry, if you want to introduce your friend. Is that, is that repentance? <laughs> so Ross Carrick, is it still, John, is it still called Ross Carrick? Okay. Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's right. Welcome, Mike. Glad to have you here. Glad, glad to have everyone, yeah, Wayne. Hey, Tina, we're glad to have you here. Welcome, Mesh. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, but before I do that, um, <clears throat> uh, I want you all to know Jim's not feeling 100%, but he's going to do the best he can. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about why this session is so important. Jim is going to spend some time with you walking through the nuts and bolts of practical discipleship. It's one thing to say we, we all ought to be about discipleship and discipling. Uh, yesterday we saw uh, that the method that Jesus used was relational discipleship. Some people uh, even asked again just recently, well, will this work in Canada? And uh, uh, Jim, what are the countries that this this works in? Uh, it's in Peru, Ethiopia, Kenya, um, Mexico, uh, China. Um, it's, it's all over the world. You know, not in the house church movements in, Amer- or in, in, in uh, China, India, all of those places, they use small group system. They don't have a, a larger church gathering. The number one problem they have in those areas is a lack of accountability for the pastors and a lack of intentionality. Uh, the groups tend to be um, uh, 
what's the right word to, to use? Disorganized, even though they're house churches, they're begging for more intentional ways of making disciples. So they really feed in on the, the, the keys to reproduction. And, uh, of course, they don't have to build systems that, that entail larger gatherings like worship services because they just don't have, they don't have buildings where you could even meet except for very rare times in those house church movement cultures. So, Here's the thing we're inviting you to consider is that relational discipleship uh, is actually the way Jesus did it, and so it's a transcultural thing. I would argue not only is it transcultural and that it will work in every culture because it's the way people are wired, but I would also ask each of you to think of when you were discipled, and you will find that the most effective parts of the discipleship in your okay. own life it will be because somebody, maybe a parent, but somebody had a relationship with you, and in that relationship with you, they helped you to follow Jesus. So the fundamental uh, thing is, is uh, um, it's sad that people would ask that question, but it's more of just because it seems so different. So I think it's an honest question, and in that sense, a good question. But uh, the answer to that is, what was the method that Jesus used Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does Jesus teach parents? Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 teaches relational discipleship. That's how we raise our kids. Um, I think I told some of you that uh, there's a guy, if you've ever heard of Seeds music, Seeds family worship music, the guy who does that came out of our church. He was discipled at our church. He now lives in Twin Falls, Idaho. He just moved there. But he and I have co-authored a book that we're about to finish up and uh, we, we've taken, at this point, the audacious title of Parenting Like Jesus. Because our argument is that Deuteronomy 6, the parenting model taught there, is actually what Jesus did with his disciples. And that parents should do that, churches should do that. Anyway, Jim's going to explain all that to you in terms of a practical systems. Uh, more detail on what he's going to talk to you about in the book, Real Life Discipleship. And I've tried to um, hold apart a book for each organization so uh, we're about to run out of them. So make sure if you're leading uh, one of your organizations that are represented, your church or organization, that you uh, see me about getting one of these. Let's pray. Lord, we stop. All of us are coming from different places. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present. That you would teach us, you would speak to us, in our, uh, in our hearts about how we can better live out discipling people the way Jesus did. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me just, uh, whoa, there I am. Uh, let me just go through uh, some, some review today, a little bit from yesterday before we start to take some new ground. Um, what is the purpose of the church? Make disciples. The way our vision statement reads is to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. And uh, the word we, reach the world for Jesus one person at a time, is key because many times Christians do not understand that they play a part in that. Not just paying the tithe so the senior pastor and the staff can do it, put on the program so that people can come to church. No, we share our faith. We believe in the ministry and the priesthood of every believer. 
And therefore, the job of the pastors is to equip people for works of service, to equip people to make disciples who can make disciples. Every person is supposed to be a disciple maker. If you have children, you're supposed to make disciples, aren't you? Or is your job to to make sure you pick out a good church that has a good Sunday school system and you bring them to church and they disciple their kids? Well, okay, if people haven't been discipled and they don't know how to disciple, then how well are they going to do at discipling their own children? Right? Which might be why 90% of all people who come to know the Lord in the church as kids leave the church between ages 18 to 24. Most never to return. Why? They weren't discipled. Well, their parents took them to church, but their parents weren't mature disciples either. And so they saw a young person in the faith representing Christ, which is why on the way home in the car they went, yeah, I didn't like that guy's pre- preaching, and boy, the music didn't uh, fit, you know, and, and their, their parents are fighting about this or that or just don't even care, but they say they believe in Jesus, but the kids saw parents that didn't care or fought about everything, and they went, well, why do I want to be that? Why do I want to do that? Does this make sense to you today? Is it after lunch? Are you all right? You guys all have that blank look on your face. You're actually looking like I feel right now. So the the job of the church is to make disciples, by the way, who worship God, who give, who serve. Right? If you're making disciples, people are obedient to the Lord. They're ministering. They're caring. They're, they're singing praises to God. Disciples, mature disciples, uh, reflect Christ's love to the world in both what they say and what they do. All right. Now, Jesus uh, gave us uh, the task of going into the world and making disciples. We went through that. Remember, we talked about what a disciple is, and it's important that when you say uh, what a deci- or when you say we're to go out and make disciples, you need to define that, and you need to have kind of a collaborative definition. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you, put that there. you just need to have a collaborative definition of what that is. In other words, if you're a team, if you're a body of believers and you all have a different definition of what a disciple is, how well are you going to work together to make disciples? Everybody understand that that principle. In our church, and I'm not suggesting that you use what we use as a definition. I think you and your team should come up with that together and collaborate, but we wanted to pick a simple verse that our people could understand. What is a disciple? Matthew 4.19, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They're committed to following Christ, being changed by Christ, and committed to the mission of Christ. That helps them know where they are as a disciple, but it helps them know what to do with others if they're going to make a disciple. All right? So um, we know where to make disciples. We know what a disciple is. Um, Oh, and... uh, uh, thirdly, we know how disciples are made. They're made in relationship. Jesus said, come and follow me. He was inviting them to come and be with him. Isn't that true? Um, when, you, when you go out and make disciples and, and you make disciples, are you inviting people to come and be with you? Or are you inviting people to come back to church next week? Or come to a Sunday school class? 
are your people when they're making disciples? What are they? Typically, when we speak of discipleship, what we think of is a transfer of information. It's more than transfer of information. It's transfer of purpose. It's transfer of lifestyle. It's transfer of of change. Of, we're becoming like Christ. Bill, uh, Bobby just talked about Deuteronomy six. Do you remember Deuteronomy six? Talk about it when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you walk along the road, when you sit down and eat. Proximity is implied in that passage. Relationship is implied. You're walking on the road with them. You're sitting down to eat with them. Fellowship, life together, is a part of the body of Christ. Go through in Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2. They're baptized. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then we stop. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, to fellowship. Go through and look at all the the, the times fellowship is implied in Acts 2. So in Matthew 4.19, discipleship is defined in the invitation, come and follow me, I will make you fishers of men. But the methodology is also implied in the invitation. Come and be with me. So let me ask you a question. How many of you had somebody share Christ with you and then spent time with you doing life together to help you understand who Jesus is and was? How many of you had that person? And did they hold you accountable when you messed up? Did they encourage you when you were down? Jesus' methodology for teaching was relational. He, he would preach a sermon. How often did the disciples even understand what in the world he was talking about? Remember one time they came to him and said, Jesus, explain this to us. And why it doesn't make any sense to us. And he said, it's not for them to know. It's for you to know. And then he explained the definition. Uh, 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 give me a, 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 a parable that he had to explain to them after he taught it. And the, uh, Say it again. The sower, what else? Wheat and the tares. Leaven and the Pharisees. In other words, when he would say things, the disciples didn't even get it until there was a debriefing time. Right? There was relationship. There was a debriefing time after every message that he gave. How did he teach? He taught with stories. Then he would explain the stories. He gave them time to minister or a ministry, and then he debriefed their ministry. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But relationship is a part of being the body of Christ. So let me ask you this question. And I don't mean relationship. Let me make this point. A potluck can be relational, but that's not the kind of relationship I'm talking about. Watching hockey together, playing golf together, that's not the kind of relationship I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is where I ask you how you're really doing and you tell me. I'm doing life with you and I see how you're doing something or not doing something and I praise you for it or I call you on it. You understand what I'm saying? Real relationship. Well, let's let's uh, move on. How are disciples made? They're made in relationship. Come and be with me. Now, there are three components of intentional discipleship we're going to go through today. 
Three components. Are you ready? Number one is an intentional leader. Number one is an intentional leader. Discipleship takes an intentional leader. That which is unintentional is unreproducible. Now, I want you to hear what I just said. What, is, what do you think when, I, when you hear me say, that which is unintentional is unreproducible? Have you ever had somebody um, where you, you debriefed a certain situation where, like, for instance, we have people that come to our church all the time, and they'll come out and they'll go, oh, that was amazing. I can see why people are coming to your church by the thousands. I go, really? Explain that to me. What, what do you think it is? It's your music. Now, if I let them leave thinking it's our music, and they go and reproduce what they think it is, how well is that going to work? Not very well. That which is unintentional is unreproducible. In other words, the, the guy behind you will kind of get some parts of it and they won't get key components of it and you won't have actually explained it to them and they'll watch and they'll go, ah, oh, and they may or may not get part of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then how are they going to remember? Discipleship is not just about discipling a person. It's about raising up a person to raise up another person. So not only do they not get it, what, what, what parts of what they're, uh, you're teaching are they not going to give to the next generation of spiritual children? See, you're not just as parents raising up your kids to feed themselves. You're, gonna, you're raising them up to someday be able to take care of their own family. Isn't that true? It's the same spiritually. You're raising up people who are going to have to reproduce what you're doing with them with their own children. Which is why it's so such a problem in the church because oftentimes the only people you ever see serving in the church is the pastor. And so when you tell the parents to go uh, disciple their own kids, they think in terms of, well, I can't do what the pastor did. He's a, he's a good speaker. I, I can't speak like that. I can't, I can't do the things he knows how to do. I don't know the Greek. I don't. If that's the only model of what a Christian disciple looks like, how well can everybody in the church or even some of the people in the church reproduce what the pastor can do? That's why when you ask people that come from other churches in our church to come and be a part of a small group and to be a small group leader, you know they always say no. You don't want to know why they say no? Well, because I, I don't have a Bible college degree. I'm not taught. I don't, I don't know Greek. I don't, where did they learn they had to know Greek and they had to, to, to speak for a living to be the disciple maker of somebody else? Where did they learn that? What we're doing in the church, if this is the only time we serve together and we see each other in the church and you have to do what I'm doing, how reproducible is it for people, the general laborer in the church, to reproduce what you're doing in their own family, let alone with somebody else? Are you, are you starting to understand what I'm saying here? We're creating a system that is unreproducible by the normal Christian. 
which means that they're only ever going to be able to bring their kids to Sunday school. And how well does one hour a week counteract 40 hours of television, time with their peers, You see what I'm, what I'm saying? That's why, hey, you're right, there's a lot of ways to do a church service. But there's not a lot of ways to disciple people. You might sing hymns, you might sing choruses, you might do communion before, after, you might not do communion at all. You might have a baptism at the end of the service, you might not. You might preach through storing. You might do exegetical preaching. You might do whatever. That, there's a lot of ways to do church on a Sunday morning. But, but beyond that, the rest of the days of the week, people don't go to church. They are the church, and they're to be disciple makers who disciple others. Where are they going to learn how to do that in a church that has lost its ability to be relational, as God defines relationship? All right. So number one, you need an intentional leader. Remember, we were talking about this yesterday. An intentional leader, as we define it, is one who understands Christianity, one who is able to look into somebody else's life and know where they're at in their spiritual walk, and one who is able to create an environment for growth for them, one who is able to come alongside them and help them grow up in their faith. So... The three components are you need an intentional leader, you need a relational environment. Relational environment is key because only in a relational environment, it could be two, it could be three, it could be anything over 15 is not a relational environment. The bigger it gets, the quieter people get. They don't share where they're really at. They don't share what's going on in their life. You can't ask them questions. You can't really know them. Well, what, is, what are the components of a relational environment that I, that, that, that I define? Number one, shepherding. I cannot shepherd 8,000 people, but it's not my job to shepherd 8,000 people. It's my job to make sure 8,000 people are shepherded. Remember how we talked about the three different models. Do you guys remember the three different models? Model number one was what? The show model where my job is to put on a program, and that's kind of difficult because, oh, there we go, I can't even open up a pen. Uh, the show model is, here I am as the star, and the leaders that I have in my church help me put together my ministry. Rather than me releasing you to do your ministry, you exist for my ministry. Our radio program where I speak. Our worship service that supports when I speak. Our youth minute, our children's ministry that supports, it's about me and, and, and my personality. Then there is the shepherding model where I shepherd a certain amount of people. And I'm responsible for those people. How many people can the normal pastor care for? All the weddings, the funerals, the sick people, the counseling, the, the classes, the preaching. The, how many people can the normal person take care of? How do we know it's 90 because 90% of churches in the U.S. are 90 or less. All right? So then you have the shepherding model. By the way, this leads to burnout. 
And by the way, these children, they just learn to be taken care of, and they like to be taken care of. My pastor exists for me. His job is to take care of me. And the reason it's all about I and me is because they've never grown up to take care of anybody else. They've got their pastor, and the pastor just loves me, and he comes to the hospital and brings me flowers and does our weddings and our funerals, and, and he exists for me. And no, I don't want anybody else to come to the hospital. I was in the hospital, and he came, or he didn't come. And this guy runs around like a chicken with his head cut off, can't even take a vacation because what happens to one of my people if I'm not there? Then the third model is the coaching model, and it's completely different. If this is the front lines, and here are the people, my job is to make sure those at the front line have what they need to have a walk with God. I minister to them and get them ready and equip them. And then I equip these two guys here. And actually our system is 90 staff and about 1,400, 1,500 volunteers. And then the people in the church. All right? So my job is to systemize and make sure that we've got systems set up to make sure that our people on the front line are equipped, they have what they need to fight the fight they're fighting. It's a completely different model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and here's the deal. Overseers typically think in terms of this. But Jesus said, he who is first must be last. And the servant of all. So the overseers listen to the Lord and set up the structure. This is the goal. This is how we're going to sit, put that together. And then they actually become a part of that system to minister. They're not just business deciders or hires and fires. They are a part of serving and caring for the body of Christ. They earn the right to be heard. This is not a cult. It's not a government agency. They don't, people don't do what we say because we tell them to do it. We earn the right to be heard by the way we care and love for those in our congregation. All right? So having said that, you need shepherding. You need modeling. Do your people need to know in a world where they were not taught how to disciple their kids or how to be in a good marriage or uh, how to, to work honestly? Do they need a model of those things in their life? How did Jesus teach people to pray? He prayed, but why did they ask him? Jesus, teach us to pray. They saw him praying. And when he prayed, freaky things happened. Voices from heaven. Healings. I mean, and they're, they're seeing this guy pray. How, how do you pray? Well, let me show you how to pray. Real teaching. Real, let, me, let me just say it to you this way. We have a policy in the United States called no child left behind policy. Has anybody heard of that policy? Did you know most of my family are teachers? They hate that policy. Now, President Bush put the policy together for a pretty good reason. It's because American kids were not being taught very well. Teachers were doing a very poor job, and the unions were protecting the teachers, the bad teachers. So they said, here's what we're going to do. If your kids can't pass classes then we're going to fire you because you did not do a good job teaching. 
which good teachers don't have a problem with, until you start shoving a whole bunch of people into that classroom. See, the larger the classroom size, the more you're forced into lecture. The more you lecture, the less real learning actually happens. Why do teachers want 20 to 30 kids in a classroom? They can know each of the kids, their learning style. They can tutor them, come alongside them. The bigger the group, now I'm talking, but how do I know whether you're really getting it? Like right now, how do I know what you're really thinking about what I'm saying? I can try to look at your faces and go, are they buying this? Are they not? Are they bored? Are they hung up on something I said before that they have a question about? Are they scared? Do they really get it? How do I know that about this room right now? I don't. So do I know whether you're really learning or not by me talking? So that means when I pay $350 a credit for my kid to go to school, he must be learning. Right? Instead of checking out the girl down the row, she's hot. Do you see what I'm saying? See, real discipleship takes modeling. How did Jesus again model servanthood? He washed the disciples' feet. Now, how did he know he needed to teach that lesson? They were arguing about who the greatest was. In other words, he was with them as he's walking down the road. Why didn't Jesus just stop right there and preach a three-point sermon on servanthood? Say it again. Yeah. Jesus taught by modeling, and he knew what they really needed by being with them. Pastors cannot be with a hundred people. That's why you develop leaders and systems so that you have enough leaders modeling and caring for your people. Because everyone needs to have relationship. Maturity comes from being discipled in relationship. And maturity is the result of relationship. Maturity is the result of relationship. And relationship is a result of being in relationship with mature people. I mean, it's, it's, it's circular in its reasoning. You become mature by being discipled in relationship. And you're a mature believer as a result of that relationship with mature believers. Okay, so you need shepherding, you need modeling, you need real teaching, you need authenticity. James 5.16, I was talking to a brother that is, uh, uh, I would call him my AA brother. Is he in here today? Nope, he didn't come back. He came up to me last night. He said, hey, I'm, and I can't remember his name. He said, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, I'm Jim Putman, and I'm an alcoholic. My AA brother, I knew right away he was my AA brother. You know, he goes, I go to church, and I got some friends in the church, but I I feel so often out of place. But when I go to that AA meeting and somebody says, hey, I'm a codependent, or I'm a drug addict, or I deal with one of those things, 
He goes, why can non-Christians do that in an AA setting, but we all come here pretending that we don't have anything wrong with us? And he goes, it's just so uncomfortable. I wish the church could be more like AA meetings. Now, I'm not saying we should do that on a Sunday morning worship service. And there's certainly right times. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm not always at whatever time I'm in going to dump everything on you because I feel like I have to to be authentic. There are right times to do that. But are you in relationship with people where you can say, I am struggling in my marriage or I'm having a lot of doubt right now or I'm in pain or I don't know what to do? Or do you have those and do you create a culture in your church where people have that and do they need it? I was talking to Bobby last night. I don't understand church people. I really don't. I don't understand how we got to this place where my perfection is my credibility. I don't get that, where pastors feel like they can't share with their congregation that they're hurting and they don't know what to do. And they're just struggling to carry on. When You know what? If you said that to your congregation... They go, oh, okay, I'm not a freak. I struggle too. He's just like I am. He's further along and he's not going to quit, but he feels like quitting. Who I feel like quitting. Instead of, if I feel like quitting, I can't say because, or if I have doubt, I can't say because people will judge me because we know mature Christians are filled with joy all the time. Is that true? Mature Christians are filled with joy all the time? I mean, I guess it depends on how you mean joy. Do I have hope because I know what God's doing is for a reason? I may not know what it is right now. Is it wrong for me to say in the last two years, I've been ticked at God from time to time? Is it okay for me to say that? Has anybody else in here been ticked at God from time to time? Do you think your people feel that way? Do you think it would be helpful for them to know that you feel that way too? But you're not going to quit because mature believers, even though they suffer, they don't quit. And they get strength from each other and they commiserate sometimes and they, they pray for one another. I know people that are like, they're around to pray for everybody, you know. Let me pray for you. I see you're struggling. Okay, before you pray for me, could you tell me what you struggle with? Because you're freaking me out. I'll let you pray for me. But the last 10 years, you've never told me one thing to pray for you about because you're perfect and you're ticking me off. So before you pray for me, I want you to tell me what I can pray for you for. Happy boy. (laughs) Did you know that if we were like that, the unchurched totally get that? They're like, oh, you can be real there. You can be open and honest and people will actually care about you and pray for you. And, and they won't always try to fix you. They'll actually just listen and, and be your friends instead of, well, if you would have done it this way, then it wouldn't be that way. And if you'd have trusted God and, and you're sick because, you know, you, you didn't pray right or, or you must have done, you know, it, it, all that crap. I just, I don't, I don't have time for that. I don't want it. And I, you know what? I don't even want to give it to anybody else. Anybody mad at me right now? 
James 5.16, confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. How much confessing of sins goes on in your church? And if it doesn't happen, why not? Why won't people confess their sins? What do they think they're going to get if they did? This just happened a few months ago. Pastor went to his wife and said, I've struggled with pornography since I was eight years old. My dad gave me a Playboy. And honey, I don't want to do this anymore. So would you help me put filters on our computer? And I'm going to go to counseling. Would you go to counseling with me? And they went to counseling. And after three months, the counselor said, you know what? I'm so proud of you. You're doing great. You need to go and tell your senior pastor that you've been struggling with this. I don't think that'd be a good idea. No, I think you need to do that. Oh, okay. Went and told his senior pastor within three weeks. They brought him up in front of the congregation and let him go because he had struggled with pornography. Hmm. So you actually go get counseling and you go get help and you've fought it your whole life and you're struggling with it and now now, now you're done. Hmm. I'll bet there's going to be a lot of confessing going on in that church. We're the sin police. Gotcha. You're busted. Instead of a hospital for the sick. Hmm. Accountability. My life versus Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. Let me just say it to you. See to it, my brothers, that none of you gets a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, did you hear what I just said? Hebrews 3.12. See to it, my brothers, that none of you gets a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that your heart will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another. What does that mean? Encourage. Well, the Greek there is to encourage or say, yes, good job, or to admonish, meaning, what are you doing? What are you doing? Encourage, admonish one another. How often? Why daily? Because I can get jacked up in five minutes, let alone a day, right? Admonish one another daily. Why? So that your hearts will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. How can I encourage you if you won't tell me there's something wrong? How can I admonish you if you don't confess your sins to me and I don't confess my sins to you? How can I encourage or admonish you if I don't see you, don't know you, except for when I come to church on Sunday morning 1.6 times a month? Or even every week? You don't go to church. You are the church. In America, Christians go to church once a, a month, only 20, or once a week, excuse me, tw- actually 1.6 times a month, but let's say it was once a, a week. But they're not in small groups. They're not in relationship. They have no one that they're accountable to. And is any wonder when you look at their life statistics, they're identical to non-Christians. Is Jesus, is the word in the habit of telling you to do something you don't really need to do? So when he says to encourage one another daily, you don't really need to do that. I mean, that's kind of overkill. Why Why again? So that your hearts are not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
A church without relationship, honest, open relationship. I'm not talking about politeness. I'm not talking about putting on a face. How you doing? Oh, I just love you. Oh, I love you too. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about that. Real relationship with real open on it. Without the church, without that, will not be spiritually deep and will not accomplish the mission of God. Guided practice. When I talk about a, a component of a relational environment, how do you guys remember how I told you all of our staff, most of our staff, 83 of the 90, got into ministry? Do you remember how that happened? Where did they start? In small groups, participating. Then, then they became an apprentice. Then they became a leader. Then they became a coach over leaders. Finally, they were hired into one position or another. Or they became elders. Where do you think they learned their skill sets? On the field, playing. See, our small groups is a place for us to learn how to play. My job is to create a playing field for them to play on so that they can grow in their skill sets. Do you guys remember, somebody asked me yesterday, how do we get so many men in our church to serve? Who was that that asked me that? Somebody in here? I don't remember, but... You want to know, here's the deal. Men, do you want to know why? I believe, first of all, that there are leaders in every church. Why? Because God knows leadership is needed in every church. The problem is that we've misdefined what a leader looks like. We think a teacher is a leader. A teacher is not a leader. A teacher informs. A leader says we're going to take this information and do something with it. We're going to go somewhere together. Most of the leaders aren't in churches, though, most effective leaders are not in churches because they're not just going to come and sit and look at a broken down system and just put up with it. They just check out. They take their skill sets to the world. They become good businessmen out there because in the church, all they get to do is sit and listen. They're not really going anywhere. They're not really doing anything. They can look around and go, wow, this place is kind of a mess, but they're not invited in to the process of changing it. By the way, most men do not learn best by sitting and listening. Most men learn best through activity. So when you create this small group system where guys actually get to serve and be a part of something, they get on fire for it. They actually get to put it to work. When you send one of these small groups on a missions trip to build a house, they get to be with other believers. They get to build stuff, do stuff. They're active. They're learning. They're talking. They're not just sitting there focusing to, on a lecture when that's not the best way they learn. And they just they want to get up and their legs kicking like this all the time. And they're just, oh. And, and church is not built as it is right now for men and leaders. It's, it's built typically for people who sit and watch. So our men who have the gift of leadership are not getting to use it in the kingdom. So they take it out into the world and they start their businesses and they, they go and work there and then they come to the church to rest and sit and listen and to make their wife happy typically. All right. So number one, in order to have a disciple-making organization, you need an intentional leader. You need as many of them as you can get. You need... A relational environment, it happens, discipleship happens in relational environments. You know what? That's why when people come and go, I don't really like small groups. I don't want to be in a small group. 
but I'd like to serve over there, and I got millions of dollars, and I tithe a lot, so let me go over there and serve in the worship team and play my guitar, but don't make me get in a small group. I say, keep your millions of dollars, and no, if you won't get in a small group where you're discipled, you won't get up there and be in front of people. See, small groups for us, it's not, there's not, some people are like, there's many ways to make disciples. No, there isn't. There's many ways to inform somebody. There's many ways to entertain somebody. There's many ways to get them to feel some emotional thing. But there's not many ways to make disciples. You have to have relationship to make disciples. All right. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute because now we're going to get into the technical, how do you, uh, the process of making disciples. But before I go into that, what time is it now? It's 1.15. What time am I supposed to be done? 2.30? Do I have some questions that you'd like to ask before I move into this next part? Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, uh, we talked about that yesterday. We have a huge women's ministry. The Bible says the older women are to teach the younger women. We have uh, women involved in all different kinds of ministries, but when it pertains to leading men, the uh, Bible says I do not allow a woman to teach or to take authority over a man. So, um, yep. We have women who teach women. We have women who are, participate in every ministry. And to be quite honest with you, it has to do with men and women in our church. Our elders and our staff bring women in and go, what do you think about this? Our women help us with our sermons. But when it comes to teaching or taking authority over uh, a man, the Bible says what it says. And I don't really care what the culture thinks about it. And, you know, here's the other part of it that, uh, uh, you know, the, it, it, there's a great book out right now called uh, uh, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And it actually does a study, a research study on what has happened to the movements that have had women start taking leadership roles over men in the churches and the decline as a result. It's called Why Men Hate Going to Church. Last name's uh, Morrow. It's a very in-depth scientific study. You would not believe uh, what that book shows you about the church, especially in America. That's where the study was was, uh, done. So, any other questions? Yeah, here's what we do. When we have a a leader, one of the things that leaders need is they need to be told it's time for you to lead. They need a clear definition of leadership, a clear job description, and they need to be told it's time now. You are, they need to be, it's kind of like when I was a student teacher in in high school or in uh, uh, college. My teacher would say, it is time for you to lead. You are in control of the classroom. We'll debrief it at the end of the day. They need permission to lead. Or they'll always be like, well, what do you want me to do? No, no, no. <laughs> you, you, you know, We were talking about this uh, yesterday at the table for lunch. Uh, in baseball, I want you to imagine that somebody hits the ball to the second baseman. 
And the second baseman stops, catches the ball, looks over to the coach and says, can I throw it to first base now? By the time he gets permission, what happened at first base? He's already there. He's safe. Okay? We want them to, to take responsibility for leading, and then we'll coach them along the way. We'll debrief them along the way. We're going to come into that in this next uh, session, in just the next little bit here. Any other questions? Are you folks awake enough to go into this next session? All right. Number one, they need an intentional leader. Number two, they need a relational environment. Number three, they need a biblical, reproducible process. What we did is we went into Scripture and said, okay, did Jesus have a methodology for making disciples that we can reproduce? Did Jesus, how many of you believe that Jesus is the greatest disciple maker in history? That he knew exactly what he was doing. Do you believe that? All right. So, remember I said this to you yesterday, a lot of times we'll look at the story that he's telling, but we don't look at the context in which he's telling it. How is he telling it? What did he do before and after he told it? How is he teaching, right? Same thing. Jesus had a methodology for how he made disciples. And so here's what I want to do. I want to share with you what we call the SCMD process. And uh, you can, there are people that call it different things in different churches that use this. We want them to use their own language. But Jesus had a process. The first thing that Jesus did with his disciples was he shared with them who he was. He shared with them who he was. Before Jesus called his 12 disciples, give me some ways in which he shared with them who he was. Just before he invited the disciples to come and follow him, what did Jesus do? Yeah. He remember do you remember when Jesus was in the boat, he had been preaching and he said, Let's go out into the the water? And then he said, Throw your nets over the side. Do you remember that? And they caught a bunch of fish. And what did Peter do when they caught all the fish? He fell on his face. He said, get away from me, Lord. I'm what? I'm a sinful man. Jesus said, come and follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. John the Baptist, when when he saw Jesus walking, what did he say when he saw him to his disciples? Behold the Lamb of God who comes comes to take away the sins of the earth. Remember that? Jesus shared who he was by what he said. Remember, he turned the water into wine. That was before he chose the 12. He did many things sharing with them who he was. Then he said, come and follow me. What did he do? Those who accepted, this guy's the Messiah, this guy's, you know, and and, and he said, come and be with me. He connected with them in relationship. He shared who he was, then he invited them to come and connect with them, and they did. During this time right here, he replaced the false teachings that they had been taught. Give me some of the false teachings that they had been taught that Jesus had to replace. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What else? Hate your enemy. 
marriage. You remember, you remember uh, the disciples asked, uh, or some people came and asked, Pharisees asked them about marriage, and, and uh, you know, you remember he said, listen, you're married forever, basically. And then the disciples went, well, and that's the case, and who wants to get married? Do you remember the disciples actually said that? They were like, uh, I don't want to, that was their view of marriage. Crazy. He connected with them. He spent time with them. Now, as he spent time with them, he started to send them into ministry opportunities. Give me some of the ministry opportunities that he sent them into. Basic ones first. He, 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 he breaks the bread, puts the fishes out, says go and collect, put the people in the 50s, go and collect now the extra, right? Menial jobs, servant jobs. Isn't that true? Then he sends them out by twos, gives them a task when they come back, Let's talk about that. How'd that go? Then he sends them out by 72. The 72 does the same thing again. Debriefs. He had them serving. He had them casting out demons. Then he would debrief. Here's a great example. They came down from the hill of transfiguration. What was going on when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down the hill? There was a young man that they were trying to cast the demon out. A father brought their kid and they couldn't do it. Then they said, Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? Remember, he said, this one's by prayer. He taught them. They were in in ministry positions. He let them serve, and then he taught them. Isn't that right? So he shared who he was. He connected with them. Then he started to give them ministry opportunities, and finally he sent them out to make disciples. Now, do you remember when Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples? Did they go, what does that mean? I mean, how would we do that? Why didn't he give an in-depth explanation of it? He had already modeled it. They knew exactly what to do. Let's look at it this way. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and what? What shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Repent to be baptized, every one of you. What has what was Jesus, what was Peter doing? He was sharing who Jesus had been. Wasn't he? What did they do next? Acts 2.42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer, they met together in the temple courts and from house to house daily. What were they doing? They were connecting in relationship. Now, an immediate need grew up in the early church. What was it? First fight. The Greek widows. They said, Peter, the, the disciples said, we're not going to do that. We're going to be devoted to the ministry of the word and a prayer. Choose seven men from among you, filled with the Holy Spirit. They laid their hands on them, and those young men did what? They did ministry. Now, a great persecution broke out in the early church based on what happened to one of the seven. Which one? Stephen. Where did Philip go? 
to Samaria. And what did he do? You see why we call it, we share who who Jesus is with people. We invite them into relationship. We then begin to train them in ministry as we get to know them. We start to train them in ministry, help them figure out their gifts, help them learn how to serve. And finally, we send them out to do the very same process that we did with them. Make sense to you? Now, let's go to the next step of this. Let's say that I have shared with somebody. Uh, let me do it a little bit different. We talk about five stages of spiritual development. Stage one is death. You have a person who is dead. Is that a biblical stage? Do you see that in scriptures? We were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see that in scripture? Let's let me do it the way that you guys are have it in your notes. So that we can walk through it together. You have the dead, you have the infant, you have the child, you have the young adult, you have the parent. The five stages of spiritual growth. Who starts out here? Everybody does. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. If you sin, you will what? You will die. Then you have the stage called being born again. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You have the spiritual stage of being born again. When you are born again, you become a what? An infant. Is, that, is, is there any scriptural support for infancy? You should be teachers now, but you're mere infants. How do you know you were infants in 1 Corinthians? Because there were divisions among you. Right? That shows that you're an infant. 1 Peter 2 says, Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up. Is there a spiritual growth process in the lives of people? You've got the dead. You're born again. The Holy Spirit moves in. You are an infant. You are a child. You become a child. Is there anywhere in Scripture that talks about children spiritually? Yes. Uh, that, that passage in 1 John, you can see here it's in your notes. In 1 John Chapter 2, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He goes right back through the thing again. I don't think he's talking to a boys club. I think what he's talking to here is a group of people that fit into different categories of spiritual growth. You've got children 
young adults, and finally parents. What do parents do? They have children. Now, here's a question for you. What, one of the things, remember we were talking about an intentional leader. Intentional leader understands the game. He can evaluate where somebody's at, and then they're able to create an environment for growth. Right? Do you want your people to know where, if they're going to make disciples, who am I dealing with right now? Am I dealing with a dead person, spiritually, an infant, a child, a young adult, or a parent? Because unless I can identify that, I don't know what to do in their lives. And I'm being called to be a part of this. Where are they at and what do I do? Do you see what I'm saying? What we call it is the phrase from the stage. That's how we say it to our people. The phrase from the stage. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. The Bible says you know a tree by its what? Fruit. So what we do is we teach people the different stages of development and how to know where that person's at. All right? Give me some kind of things. What kinds of things does the spiritually dead say? I don't believe in God. Spiritually dead. What else? What's that? I don't need God. What else? There's no such thing as sin. God wouldn't accept me for after everything I've done. What else do they say? Religion sucks. Okay. All religions are the same. These are spiritually dead people. I'm a good person. Spiritually dead. That's what we call the phrase from the stage. Now, if I'm raising up people who can make disciples, then I need to know, hey, that person's spiritually dead, even if they're a pretty nice person by my standards. They're spiritually dead. What do I do? Well, we're going to come to that. An infant. What kinds of things does an infant say? See, the word infant for us, an infant in Christ, uh, these guys are characterized by unbelief. These guys are characterized by ignorance. In other words, they may have been born again, and they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and He's their Lord and Savior, but they have no idea what the Bible actually says because they haven't actually looked into the Word of God. They don't know what it says. They're the people that come up to me and go, you know what, Jim? There's a guy in our church that uh, uh, has, I gave him a job, and he basically robbed me. And so I'm thinking about suing him. What do you think about that? What is he? He's ignorant. Not stupid, ignorant. He doesn't know the word of God says you don't sue a brother and that you're to go to the church. For instance, it's like a lady who came to me the other day and said, Jim, I just love the Lord and I just got baptized not very long ago. And I'm, I, I've just, I have a question for you, though. Um, my grandmother died, and is she reincarnated now? How can she possibly know what the Bible says on that subject when she just gave her life to the Lord? Do I automatically go, well, she's lost? No, because it's possible to believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but not gotten that far in Scripture yet. Isn't that true? Now, I might need to go now. Okay, let me just say this to you. That's Buddhism. Okay, the Bible says that you're destined to live once and to face judgment. 
Let me go to Scripture and let me show you here what it actually says, right? But she doesn't know this. She's like, oh, oh, no. I don't know if she was saved. I was thinking, well, she could be reborn and then maybe she'd get another chance. Now I have to work through that with her, right? She's accepted Christ, but she doesn't know. Okay? So when somebody comes up to you and says something really stupid, don't just go, well, they're lost, unless it's characterized by unbelief. I don't believe. When it's, I don't know what to believe, then I ask the question, are you a Christian? Uh, I remember when uh, The Secret came out. How many of you guys remember the book The Secret? It came out. And I had a bunch of our new believers. They wanted to actually start a, uh, a little small group using the book The Secret. And I actually had to create a whole sermon series for our people. And I had to take all these brand new believers and go, now hold on. Let's go through and let's look. Right? Now what would have happened if I didn't do that? And they gave their life to the Lord and they were stuck in this infant stage. And there was no one to walk them through that next stage. What would have happened to them? Fall away or they stay right there? A child is, is characterized by self-centeredness. They, they start to understand some words. They go, oh, the secret, that's not right. I know that you live once and you die and you face judgment. They're the ones that say, I love my church. I, I didn't understand. I, I don't know if I like that preacher because I did not understand a word he said. And I, I didn't like the music today. And I cannot believe that somebody took all the parking spots and I parked down the road. And I love my group. They better not branch my group. What's the key phrase in all of those statements? It's all self-focused. Don't get mad at a child for acting like a child unless they've been a Christian for 30 years. You understand what I'm saying? They're eye-centered. What do I get out of tithing? I teach our, we teach our people to go, when you hear conversation, you know, I, I've had people say, well, I just, I just don't get my needs met in that small group. No one came and visited me when I was in the hospital. I, I just go, ding, I know what I'm dealing with right now. Either somebody who's spiritually mature, who's, and it's true, isn't it true, that all of us can have childlike, infantile moments in our faith? I actually said this to my wife the other day in a fight we were having. You started it. And then I went. Not only did that not work, but I'm like, I cannot believe I just said that. Anybody else ever do? do come on, to help me out here. I'm not the only one. Now, the difference between, the difference between um, an infant and a young adult or a parent is that they re, they don't, you live in infancy and childhood versus I... I kind of float into there every once in a while. Do we all float into there every once in a while? All right. So they're self-centered. In fact, let me just tell you this. There's a lot of senior pastors that I know that are children. I can't give up my pulpit. I, I just feel God's presence in my life when I'm preaching. I, uh, I just, that's my position. I, what are they doing? They're serving because they get something out of it. 
They're not thinking about whether or not it's raising up somebody else or what it means to be somebody else. And here's the deal. If the senior pastor is childlike, how much how, is the rest of the church going to, they're either going to stay there, those who mature past that, they're out of there. I don't know of any senior pastors that are infants, but I know a lot that are childlike. They're children. Because it's their ministry. It's about that they get. They just love preaching. They just, uh, you know, it's I, 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 I. It's my church. It's my pulpit. It's my, you know, children. Okay? Phrase from the stage... Dead people are characterized by what? Unbelief. Is that pretty easy? Is that something that your people can go, yep? Secondly, ignorance. I don't know what the Word of God says about simple things. Just don't know. Thirdly, children. By the way, these are the people that uh, I don't like the music in that church. As if God can't be worshipped by the music you don't like. Okay? Uh, Children. Young adults are characterized by zeal and service. They, They want God to be glorified. They're really zealous. They're on fire for God. They really care about Jesus and about others. And they serve. But they're not, re- they're not intentional about reproduction. And they don't really think about that. I know a ton of senior pastors that fit into this one right here. Because they're not reproducing children who reproduce children, so to speak. They're not parents. But they do a great job of babysitting. In other words, what I mean by that is this. I could take my spiritual people that I know and put them with that guy and they would just take care of them and love them and they would, it's about Jesus and it's about, but train them up and develop them so that they would be the next, uh, use their gifts in a mighty way? No. But they'll take care of them. It's like a teenager. A teenager can do a good job of uh, watching your kids for a night, but they're not going to do a good job of parenting your kids for the long run. You see what I'm saying? So this is that shepherd's mindset. Do you remember that shepherd's mindset? That usually is a young adult in the faith. They love God, they love others, but they don't really produce children. They're not parents. They'll care for these people. And they'll really minister to them and make sure that their diapers are changed and they're, they're eating and they're doing those things. But as far as developing them... Are you you're getting what I'm what I'm saying? The last one is they're characterized by reproduction. In other words, they're not just sharing their faith with people, but they're connecting with people, they're serving in the body, and they are intentionally thinking about reproducing. God saved this person for a purpose. What's their purpose and how do I help them find their purpose? See, these guys, if you were to look at, these guys are players, mature players. These guys are coaches. Some of the worst coaches in the world are people who think like players. When you've got a coach who's got a player mindset, they're the worst coaches in the world. 
Because they're always thinking of, I would have done it this way, and I could have done it that way. And, and, and they're always getting out there, and they're not thinking in terms of, my job is to raise you up, to develop you, to help you be all you can be. In uh, Church of Team Sport, I talked about how I got recruited to Boise State by the guy who was wrestling for the Olympic team. And I thought he was going to coach me to be the best I could be. But what I found out was he really recruited me there so I could be his training partner so he could go to the Olympics. There's nothing worse than, than wrestling for somebody who's all about themselves and not about you. You see what I'm saying? See, and when I would wrestle kids, uh, this is a true story. I had a, a kid who I had from the time he was eighth grade till he was a sophomore in high school. And during that time, uh, when he was a sophomore, he won the state championship. His name was Josh. Big kid. Tough kid. And uh, I wrestled with him all the time because he'd just destroy everybody else in the room that was near his weight. And I'd let him win all the time, but he didn't know that. I didn't go, well, I let you want win. I just let him win. So th- his junior year, he came back and he's like, you know, coach, I really, uh, I'm going to get a different coach because I don't think you can help me now. Because, you know, I've kind of progressed and I, and I kind of beat you all the time. And I go, okay, Josh, I understand. So what you're saying is you think you can beat me. He said, yeah. I, I mean, I wrestle with you all the time, and I do beat you. And I go, oh, so you think I'm wrestling my toughest with you? Yeah. I go, okay, how about this? 25 bucks. If you, and I'm not going to pin you. I'm going to technical fall you. I'm going to score 15 points on you without you scoring one point in less than one minute. Well, the hall, the kids are like, oh, that'll never happen. They're all there watching. Josh, you, are you kidding me? And he's laughing at me. 34 seconds, and I scored 15 points, and he didn't score. You think he asked for another coach? But see, when I went to college, and this guy, it was when I beat him, you got lucky. It wasn't encouraging me, inspiring me. I can't believe I got taken down by you. You're a college kid, and I'm in the the Olympics. What do you think that does for your confidence when they're acting like that? when they're protecting their position instead of trying to build you up. You see, that, you see what I'm talking about? And too many pastors are trying to figure out how to play their best. I've got to be my best. I've got to do this, 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 and this. And they're not thinking about who in here did God save and for what purpose. And I, how do I help you be all you can be? And you take your position that you're supposed to take. And what position did God give you? What gifts do you have? How do I help you be all that you can be so that we can launch an army? And you preach better than me? Great. Come on up here and preach. I'll preach over here. You preach over there. Now there's two of us that can preach. I'm not trying to protect my position. We're trying to win the world for Jesus one person at a time. It isn't about me. It's about Him. Does this make sense to you? All right. Now, notice this next page. Let's put it all together. I'm going to try to draw this, but it's going to be pretty small. And I'm a whiteboard guy. I have whiteboards everywhere in our church because visual, I'm, I'm visual and so are a lot of people. But remember, down here, I'm going to make this smaller. Here's the little graph that I just showed you, right? You've got dead, infant, child, young adult, parent. By the way, let me say one more thing about parent. i got a lot of people that think they're spiritually mature people. And so I'll ask them, so you have disciples that you're discipling. 
And they'll go, no, I just don't really have time right now. I've kind of taken a break from that. Then I, then I say, well, then you're not spiritually mature. Because spiritually mature parents have kids. Notice I don't say adult there. See, an adult doesn't necessarily have kids, but a parent does have kids. They're defined by the fact that they have kids. How many of you in here have kids? Then you're parents. How many of you in here don't have kids, but you're an adult? How many of you in here? Then you're not a parent, right? We do the same thing. Oh, I'm spiritually mature, but I'm not really making disciples. No, you're not. I'm a spiritually mature person is making disciples. Because that's the mission of God and that's what we are told to do. You are not spiritually mature if you have prioritized other things instead of making disciples. So how many of you, how many spiritually mature people do you have in your church? Now based on that definition, they are actually making disciples. I don't know what that answer is. But they're elders. Are they making disciples? Well, they're coming to elders meetings. What does that have to do with anything? Who are they making disciples out of? If you're not making a disciple, you're not one of our elders. If you took a break from making disciples, you just took a break from being an elder. All right? All right, now, notice, notice the dead. Here's this mark. Now I want you to take the SCMD and put it over it. Make that circle and go S-C-M-D. Who do I share with? Somebody who's dead. How do I know they're dead? By what they say and do. They're characterized by what? Unbelief. What do I want our people to do? When they hear a dead person, when they go, well, you know, I just don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. What is the responsibility of a disciple maker when they hear that? They share who Jesus was. Well, let me tell you who Jesus is. What does a, what do I do with an infant in Christ? I share my life with them. Now, here's why we don't say I connect with them. Connection implies they have responsibility and I have responsibility. It's family. When you have an infant in Christ, the responsibility is yours. If you birth them, you care for them. In other words, when, they got to, when a person comes forward and accepts Christ, it's not their responsibility to come back next week. Of course, I can't make them do anything. But I'm going to say, that is a new believer, I'm going to go to them. The impetus is on me to go to them, to share my life with them. To have a spiritual baby and put them, just say, take care of yourself. I mean, how is that okay? Now, I may, they may accept Christ and be emotional and then say, yeah, I, I, I want to meet with you and then never call you back and never do any of those things. Okay, I can't. Well, I can only do my part. I can only call them, go to their house, say, are you okay? But if they're not going to step into it, I can't do it for them, can I? But still, my job is to share my life with a brand new believer to care for them and to shepherd them. 
What do I do with the child? Well, I connect them to the family. This is about small groups right here. And, and let me just say this. Let's say that I have an infant in Christ. Just came to know the Lord, and I, and I invite him to my small group. Do I just throw him in the middle of my small group and say, everybody gets to take care of him? No, I may have him in a small group, but still, who, who, whose job is to take care of him? Let me give you an example. When... Uh, in every small group I've got, I've got some children, some young adults, some spiritual infants. I've even had dead people in my small groups. And I have some parents, right? When I came home with my first or my second son, I had a three-year-old and now I have an infant. Did I walk into my house and say, boy, I need a nap. Christian, who was three at the time, please watch your brother Jesse and lay the baby down and let my spiritual child, infant, young person here, take care of my brand new son. Why not? Well, because he wouldn't know what to do with them and he'd get bored. I'd, I'd have woken up and he'd had Legos stuck up his nose because my little boy would have gone, Legos, that fits in there with my little infant, right? The job of the spiritual adult or parent is to make sure that that infant is being cared for in the church and he protects that child even from other spiritual children in the church. You know how many times I've had brand new believers come in and I'll have them out there, I'll be standing with them as they're smoking outside and, and, and I keep an eye on them because some of these well-meaning Christians who don't think Christians ought to be smoking might come up to them and go, what do you think you're doing here? I want to go, time out, whoa, they're here with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to protect that, that child from other well-meaning Christians in the body. A child, what do I do? I connect with them. I make sure they're getting connected. They're with a family. What do I do with a young adult? When, I, when they start becoming, uh, you know, like, let me give you an example. Phrase from the stage. Have this guy get saved. He's in a small group. He gets cancer. These people minister to him, care for him. We spend a lot of time praying for him. He gets better. He comes to me one day and he says, you know what, Jim? His name is Jim also. He says, uh, when I was in that cancer ward and I'd go in for chemo, there were people all around there and they got nothing better to do and they got their hooked up to chemo machines. I really think that we ought to put together a ministry to minister to those people. Hmm. That's interesting. What did I just hear from him? What is he, he coming from? He's coming from... Uh, a ministry mindset. He's moving into a ministry mindset. He wasn't saying you do it. He was saying he wanted to do it. Because if you just said, I, he wants me to do it, that would be something different. He's like, you know, I'm thinking about going down there and starting to pray with those people. He's on disability now. Uh, and so he's got time. So he's like, I, I think I'm going to go down and start praying with them. What's he emerging into? Ministry mindset. What does he need? What did Jesus do with those who were ministering? Gave them opportunity, debriefed them. I said, well, let's talk about that. How do you want to set that up? So anyway, he started going and ministering to these people. I've had people in my home group go, Jim, don't invite any more people to our small group. It's getting too big and I'm becoming uncomfortable. What is he? Child. But then in three months, they come to me and go, you know what? I was witnessing to my friend at work 
And we probably need to branch this group because uh, I, this guy needs somewhere to be. It's too big, and we need to branch the group. What's he moving into? Moving into young adult. What do I do? I start training him for ministry. I start investing in his ministry. I start helping him understand what it means to serve and care. Because here's the deal. One of the things that happens when you start ministering is you go, well, I'm going to minister and everybody's going to like me. One of the things I teach our our pastors is this. You're a shepherd and you're going to be dealing with sheep. Sheep stink and they bite. You know what that means? When you serve, you don't always get patted on the back for service. You know, cops, what they say when they go to a domestic dispute to stop a husband from beating up his wife, you know who they have to look out for? The wife. Sometimes you're trying to help people, you're counseling, you're ministering, and they're like, I don't like you because you're telling me the truth. And they're like, wow, I tried to tell them what God wanted me to tell them, and they didn't like me. Well... They need somebody to walk through that with them. Or they have a lot of success and they go, boy, I'm pretty good because I started this little ministry to single moms and now there's a hundred of them and I'm pretty good. Oh, you're pretty good. Hmm, Let's talk about that. You start to help them in their ministry. Now, by the way, Jim, who started that ministry, he's now a parent. You know what he did? He came to me, he started doing this prayer ministry. He's like, now they get, they're asking me to go and do this prayer ministry thing all the time. And they asked me to go into these other wards now. And so here's, a, I can't do this all by myself. So I'm going to have to start raising up some people to help me. And I've got these four guys that I think will help me. They've all had cancer and they're all older. And I think they would help me start praying for people and dealing with people. So I said, all right, well, what are you going to do to train those people to do that? See, now he's thinking about reproduction. He's like, these guys can help me because they've got these skill sets. They just don't know certain things. So what are you going to do to teach them? What are you going to do to train them? How are you going to train them? What am I helping them now to become? A spiritual parent. Now, why am I teaching our, our, our people this? Because it's about reproduction. You know, I was with my sons the other day and we were, we were driving and uh, to a football practice, and I go, we started talking about disciples, and you know, and I go, well, let me ask you a question. When you walk into a wrestling room, can you tell who a brand new wrestler is on your, because they're both very talented wrestlers. Oh, he goes, oh yeah. Well, what do they look like? Well, they don't have the right stance, and they're kind of looking around, and they look all scared and nervous. I go, well, can you tell the kids that are pretty good done it before? Oh yeah. Can you tell the kids that are really good? Well, what do they do? Well, Jesse, my middle son, he goes, well, they don't act cocky or anything. But they do things hard and they do things right. And, uh, you know, I go, hmm. I, su- I said, it's kind of the same in the Christian walk. And I started to go through this thing uh, with, a, with a disciple maker. And how do you know when somebody's a brand new believer? I asked him, how do you know if they're, if they're an, a brand new believer? How do you know when they're dead spiritually? And I went through that thing. And by the time it was over, my, middle son, or my youngest son, Will, he's 14, he goes, I'm a child. I go, why do you say you're a child? He goes, because it's all about me. I go, well, I hope it's not always going to be all about you. And he goes, I'm 14, Dad. It's, always, it's all about me. And he, my oldest son, Jesse, he's like, I think I'm a young adult. I'm not really uh, intentional, but I do care about people. And I, and I go, you know what? I would have assessed both of you just the way you just did that. I would say, Will, you're more towards the infancy moving into childhood realm because you're ignorant about a lot of things because you think you know everything and you don't listen. 
and you're wrong about half the time. You see what I'm saying? You're discipling your children, but you're discipling other people, and you want them to know, how do I know where this person's at? So what is God inviting me to do with them? Now, in our church, we have a lot, and I'll close with this for this next session because it is 2 o'clock. Let me just tell you a little story. We've got a lot of people in our church that are um, children, infants. I mean, we, I think we had 680 baptisms last year, something like that, 750 the year before that. We've got a lot of these young believers, right? And they're not ready to be spiritual parents over people. So let's say that, and by the way, you, you, you want to know who the best witnesses to unbelievers are? Infants. They, all their friends, most of these parents, most of their friends are already Christian. They've been in the church, they know a lot of people, but these infants, they just came to know the Lord, so all their friends are unsaved. And so you've got an infant who just gave his life to the Lord, or a child who hasn't been a Christian very long, who's been praying for his friends and witnesses to his friends, and so am I saying that that child ought to disciple that infant? No. But let me explain it this way. Let's say that my son, when he was eight years old, went down the hill from my house and he went to his friends. And it's grass fields everywhere. And he plays and he's on his way home in the evening and he hears a whimpering in the grass. And he goes over there and somebody dropped a baby off right there in the grass. And so I want you to imagine my son says, well, you know what, I'm too young to take care of that kid. And leaves it. Comes home. Am I proud of my son or am I not proud of my son? He may not be ready to take care of that baby, but he should know that that baby needs somebody to take care of him. So let's say instead of doing that, he picks up the baby, he brings the baby home to me and says, Dad, look what I found. A baby. Now, I may not be ready. Maybe I've got enough kids, but I do know this. This child needs somebody to parent him, even if it's not me. In your church, does your people know where to bring a child or an infant that they find along the way? Are there any infants who know in your church? And if there are, they have friends that are unsaved, and if they witness to them, where would they bring them? And then imagine this. If they would all bring them to you as the pastor, how are you going to parent all those kids? Wouldn't it rather be they have a small group that they can bring that infant child to where there is a spiritual parent or at the very least a developing young adult who can help take care of the needs of that child as they grow? Does this make sense to you? All right, we'll come back to this after the break. Go ahead and take a break. It's been a long two hours.